Please be seated, and good morning. Great to see you all. We're at the very last two weeks of a series we've been in for the entire fall called More Than Sex, Becoming Spiritual Mothers and Fathers. And we've been really interested in this this journey of maturity that we're all called to as God's sons and daughters who grow up into brothers and sisters who then become uh, men and women and, uh, and then really looking to what does it mean to become spiritual life givers, spiritual parents, spiritual mothers and fathers. And last week, our bishop's wife spoke about the heart of a spiritual mother. We're looking today about the heart of a spiritual father. Uh, in his book, The Cry for Spiritual Mothers and Fathers, Larry Kreider shares the story of a, of a man named Les. Les was uh, new to Christianity. He's very skeptical. He did believe in Jesus, but his faith was kind of hanging on by a thread. And a lot of that had to do with he had lots of anxiety and lots of doubts. And he was intuitive, to know that, intuitive enough to know that his peers couldn't handle some of his hardest and deepest questions about his faith. And so as a result, his, his faith was hanging by a thread, and he almost lost his faith. Uh, here's what Les said about that time. If it had not been for a 77-year-old spiritual father from my church who took a special interest in me, I would have probably thrown in the towel. But this elderly man patiently answered my searching questions and sacrificially devoted hours explaining the scriptures to me. In addition, he just spent time being my friend. Through the mentoring of my first spiritual dad, I was firmly planted in God's word and grew spiritually strong. Now, the Lord brought yet another spiritual father in Les's life, and here's what he says about that. I clearly remember the night one of my spiritual fathers called, on, uh, called me on the phone and asked me to go with him to pray for a sick man from our church. I had never done this before. As we walked into the man's home, my spiritual father handed me a bottle of oil so we could pray for him, anointing him according to James 5. I opened the bottle and dumped the whole bottle of oil on him. And the poor guy had oil running down over his face onto his shoulders. I almost drowned him. Um, on the way home that night, uh, his spiritual father that had asked him to do this uh, gently advised him, Les, next time, go a bit light on the oil. Uh, and Les said, he treated me like a son and loved me unconditionally, even when I made mistakes. Now, uh, what if we all had someone like that in our life? You know, a, a, like a, a strong yet gentle masculine figure that could call us up to what we don't, to capabilities we don't yet have, but do so gently. Uh, I think we all long for that. Um, here's how pastor and author Pete Scazzaro reads the situation in the broader church. He says, people are desperately looking for fathers and mothers in the faith who are able to embrace love empathize, be present, and forgive freely. It is a love without conditions, something of which this world knows little. To become this kind of person, to become a a spiritual mother or father, does not come naturally. So here's what Peter Scazzaro is saying. I think he's right. On the one hand, we all long for someone like this in our life, someone who's got a largeness of heart, and an interest in us, and moves towards us, and is patient with our failings and weaknesses. On the other hand, you know, there's a part of us that resists becoming that kind of person for the generation that's coming under us. 
And no matter how young you are, there are people younger than you looking up to you, looking to you going, does this person care about me? And to grow to become a spiritual life giver means that we've got to die to our selfishness, um, that we've got to die to our resentments. We've got to have a vision beyond just having our own needs met. Um, Becoming a spiritual mother or father involves growing patiently with Christ through all of the stages that we've talked about in this series. In other words, you know, we're not just longing for spiritual fathers and mothers. We're also called to become one in the Lord for the next generation. Um, This morning, we're going to open up to one of Jesus's most famous stories, and he's such a brilliant storyteller, Jesus is. He can just develop some amazing characters, and he, he tells a story to really help us understand God's father heart for us. And it's a story of a father with two block-headed sons. Um, my hope is that as we hear this story that both things are going to happen. On the one hand, um, it's going to comfort us, that we're going to be you know, built up by encountering the Father heart of God. My other intention and prayer and hope is that, is that we'll have a challenge too, that we'll be challenged to grow up to be a spiritual father or spiritual mother to the next generation that's coming. And I'll end with a few practices that we can take on to grow to become this kind of person. So turn with me to Luke 15 in your Bibles. Luke 15, verses 11 through 32. Um, how does the father in this story that Jesus tells, he's gonna have, he has two sons, and they're both blockheads in different ways. One is a self-absorbed uh, uh, son, a self-absorbed son. Uh, the other one is self-righteous. And maybe there'll be one son or the other that you lean towards. We've got a little bit of both in all of us, but maybe there's one son or the other uh, that, that you'll find yourself relating to. Let's consider the first one, the self-absorbed son. Luke 15, verse 11 begins. And he, Jesus, said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of the two sons said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. Now, in the ancient world, in Jesus' traditional Jewish-Palestinian culture, people already suspected that younger sons were lazy and selfish. They already thought that. And so Jesus has got this villain in the story that he's going he's gonna to tease out the villainous nature of the younger son who's going to totally fit the stereotype that they had in their minds of younger brothers being lazy and irresponsible. This younger brother is an affront to every cultural norm as it relates to honoring your father. Um, he says to his father something that's still rude. It's still rude in our American culture to say, you know, hey, can I have my inheritance now? It's so awkward. And rude, because what you're saying is, uh, hey, I wish you were dead. I wish that I had your stuff. I want your stuff more than I want my relationship with you. In addition to all of that, stuff in the ancient world, inheritance in the ancient world was bound up with your life. This father had spent years of literal blood, sweat, and toil working the ground so that it bore fruit. And, 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 you know, maybe even miraculously enough, 
uh, you could be you could save it. You could turn it in. You could turn some of the agriculture into cattle and, and and cultivate those. And the father has not only been doing that; he's been investing in his two sons. You know, over the years, sowing and reaping, and just years of sacrifice. This is what we do when we become parents. We become fathers and mothers. We lay our lives down. He's been doing that year after year. And the son says, Father, give me the inheritance that's coming to me. Really interesting word for inheritance. Uh, You know, in the original language, it's bios. This is the word that the younger son, uh, give me your bios. This is in other parts of scripture translated for life. It's the word that, from which we build our own word, biology. The bios, all of the blood, all of the sweat, all of the toil, I want you to liquidate it for me. I want you to, to call all of your neighbors, the village, and just go through this shameful process of, of, of liquidating assets that belong to the next generation, not liquidated and, 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 uh, and moved off-site, but passed. That was the honorable thing to do. This younger son is desecrating. He's stepping on every single one of these customs. Most importantly, he's stepping on the father's dignity by doing this, by asking for this. Um, and how does the father respond? Let's look at the second half of verse 12 there, Luke 15. And he divided his property between them. His father goes along with his son's request. And then verse 13, not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his father's property and reckless living. Now, not only, so not only did he push his father to liquidate his assets, and not only did he take his father's sacrifices with him in his bags, he went to a far country which represents a sort of vile pagan territory that's outside of covenant faithfulness to God. This is an irreligious place, and he's kind of in some ways living out the great American dream. He's anonymous. Um, the great American urban dream. He's anonymous, he's flush with cash, and he's going to do whatever he wants. He's on this journey of self-discovery. And so all the blood, all the sweat, all the tears is going into whatever their version of the slot machine was, just wasted, wasted, wasted. Um, Do you know anyone in your life like the younger brother? Or maybe is there any part of you that can relate of like you're just perfectly willing to spend someone else's money, spend someone else's sacrifice um, for what you want. Um, so the younger brother is, in the words of Pete Scazzaro, an emotional infant. And here's how he describes emotional infants in his book, Emotionally Healthy Church. Emotional infants look for other people to take care of them emotionally and spiritually. They often have difficulty in describing and experiencing their feelings in healthy ways, and they rarely enter the emotional world of others. They're consistently driven by a need for instant gratification, using others as an object to meet their needs. When uh, people sometimes perceive them as inconsiderate and insensitive, when trials, hardships, or difficulties comes, they want to quit God and quit the Christian life. You see that description fits really well for the younger brother. And if we're all honest, we've all been there. We've all been emotional infants at some point. And so, but yet, 
the, the younger son, he goes, he goes really all the way down to the seventh circle of hell on earth. Um, and it's his own fault. Verse 14 describes the continued descent. Uh, Jesus continues, when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. Well, why was he in need? He didn't save anything. He spent it all. Um, instant gratification, verse 15. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And then he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Now again, even in our culture, being so hungry that you want pig food, like, it's pitiful, and it's a little gross, too. In Jesus' culture, it wasn't just gross. His hearers would have heard this, and their ears would have burned. It would have been, like, immoral. Pigs were seen as unclean animals. Pig food, and you want pig food? You've wasted every last ounce of dignity and respect and honor, which in that culture was more important than money. So whatever you had from your father, whatever reputation his name gave you, um, you've totally wasted it. You are a wasted life. You're a nobody now. So verse 17, um, here's where he lands. But when he came to himself, when he came to his senses, he said, man, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, yet I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. He's hitting a wall here, the wall of reality. And um, coming to his senses, he realizes his foolishness to some degree. It's a little ambiguous how much he's actually repenting. One thing we do know based on how Jesus tells the story is that to a certain extent, he intends to return in body, but he doesn't intend to return to the family as a son. He's coming back to his father like this. He wants to keep his father at a distance, doesn't he? I'm no longer worthy to, for this distance to be crossed anymore. Keep me at a distance. I'm going to keep you at a distance. I'll take your food, but not your relationship. As I worked my way through this passage, I really did feel some anger towards the younger son. As you're, when you really let yourself marinate on what he's doing, um, there was a part of me that wanted some justice for this disrespectful jerk. Um, I wanted him to learn his lesson. I wanted him to pay the price. I wanted the father to be like, you know what? <laughs> um, and you know what? I think Jesus, being the storyteller that he is, he wants to surface whatever's inside of us. Because uh, that's where the transformation is. That's where the Holy Spirit meets us with the Father's heart. And um, the story really begins to take a turn in verse 20. It's a beautiful turn. It's a scandalous turn. And I think it's where we see the Father heart of God. Verse 20. And the younger son arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. And how in the world... Would you see your son coming from a long way off if you weren't looking for him? This father was looking expectantly for his son. And the minute he saw the, the, the moving speck coming his way and he 
maybe even recognize the, the gait of his son, he, he starts to run. And fathers don't run in the ancient Near East. They don't run. They don't, they don't hike up their, their, their garments and run into the middle of the village, which is what this father would have. He would have to run through the village with everyone watching to get to his son. Verse 20 says he felt compassion. Better translated, he was moved with compassion. You know, he felt tenderly towards his son, even in his own lostness and shame. And and he ran and he embraced him and he kissed him. I was surprised by also the word embraced. This is a, it's sort of like a colloquialism that Jesus used. He fell upon his neck. He darn well near tackled his son, falling upon his neck and kissing him. And moves like that are not for servants. Gestures like that are for sons. It's not at some dignified reunion where you shake hands and warm up to the idea that I used to know you. In the words of Chrysostom, dignity belongs to the teacher, but love is the mark of the father. The father bonds with his son who sinned against him. Um, even with his son saying, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, um, the father is free. He has an overflow, actually, of unreasonable amounts of love for this self-absorbed jerk who has disrespected and hurt him. This is unconditional love, and it's the love we need and the love we long for. So despite the sacrifices already squandered, the father has more provisions for his beloved son. Verse 22, the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. It's almost like he's saying, Spare no expense. Spare no expense. My son has arrived. Clothe him. The son arrives probably bedraggled, covered in slop. He's got shame that needs to be covered. He's got, um, he's got nakedness that needs to be clothed. And as we saw in Genesis 3, the father heart of God is to clothe his children. Remember um, in Genesis 3, in our sermon on shame, some of you were here for this, that before the God sent Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden. He, what did he do? He, he made garments of skin for them, and then he put it on their bodies before sending them out of the Garden of Eden. And, and, and throughout Scripture, we see God clothing his children when they least deserve it. And this is one of the times. Through Jesus' story, we see what God's heart is for us, that with his own glory, with his own best robe, he covers his son, his son's nakedness and shame with a ring as well. In verse 23, more expense. And bring the fattened calf and slaughter it and let us eat and celebrate. The fattened calf uh, would have provided so much meat. It would have been more than enough for the family. In fact, this is the animal that you slaughter if you want to invite the whole village. When you slaughter the calf, the whole village comes over for the party. Not just the Bagginses, but the Saxville Bagginses and the Tooks and the Brandy Books and the Proudfoots. Why? Verse 24. For this son of mine was dead and alive again. He was lost. He was ruined and is found. And they began to celebrate. This is the father heart of God for us. This is the father love of God. For us. 
He has so much forgiveness for us. He's so glad that we're alive. He sacrificed much for us to share in his life, to sit at his table. And, you know, believe it or not, he's ready to sacrifice even more. When the father gave his only son, Jesus, he was giving up his greatest treasure. He was giving his bios. And when Jesus poured his life out for us on the cross, what else did he have to give except his body, I mean, his flesh and blood, it was like he, was, he gave everything. We see that in the Eucharistic meal. He gave his bios. None of us will ever truly understand the full depth of God's sacrifice. And all of us in our own way have wasted it. Yet, the Father's heart is to offer forgiveness to us if we come back to him and ask for it. That's what faith is. Maybe in response to that unconditional love, he's, he's moving in some of us to begin offering grace like this to others. Um, this is still going to require wise boundaries for us. Um, it's still going to require natural consequences for the people that we love and are nurturing. That's part of parenting. Yet it is also willing to pay the price to give more than is reasonable and to put our hearts on the line, as the Father does. So we see the Father's heart not only for the self-absorbed Son, but also for the self-righteous Son. The self-righteous Son has not yet learned of his Father's unconditional love either, and we're going to see the Father show him love in a unique way. Verse 25 tells the story of the older Son. Now this his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. Um, now, uh, this may have been a confusion for the younger son uh, in a culture like this where, you know, you hear music and dancing, and it's like this would have been in the works for a long time. And as the older son, he would have been expected to be the MC of the party. So he calls to one of his servants, verse 26, and asked what these things meant, and the servant said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, and he has received him back safe and sound. Now we can imagine the older son, his face reddening, his eyes widening, his pulse quickening, putting two and two together and realizing that it adds up to a huge injustice, and he loses it. Verse 28, but he was angry, he was enraged. And he refused to go in. He goes on the attack. This is the cold shoulder attack. He goes in defiance of custom, in defiance of his father. Uh, it may have been that he screamed and ranted. Uh, it may have been that he just conspicuously ghosted to send a message. Either way, his refusal to attend the party is a form of attack and a family disgrace. And he, now it's him holding his father at an arm's distance. Um, and maybe you can relate with the older brother. I can relate with the older brother. Have you ever felt betrayed? Have you ever felt resentful? Have you ever been put upon or sinned against in a way that made you angry? Um, Pete Scazzaro, after he described emotional infants, which was a great description of the younger son, then he describes emotional children, which I thought fit very well with the elder brother. He says this about emotional children. When life is going their way, they are content. 
However, as soon as disappointment or stress enters the picture, they quickly unravel inside. They often take things personally, interpreting disagreements or criticism as a personal offense. When they don't get their way, they often complain, throw an emotional tantrum, withdraw, manipulate, drag their feet, become sarcastic, or take revenge. Their prayer life is primarily telling God what to do and how to fix their problems. Prayer is a duty, not a delight. That's an emotional child, emotional children. But you know what? Emotional children also need the Father's heart, also need the Father's love. And look at verse 28 again, except the second half of it. What's the Father doing in the second half of verse 28? He's doing the same thing for the older brother that he did for the younger brother. He's going out to entreat him. He's going out to get him and bring him back in. You know, the father's leaving his own party. This would be like, you know, a bride leaving her own wedding reception to go reconcile with a family member. And it's like, well, couldn't you wait until after the wedding reception's over? I mean, this is your thing here. It's not happening twice. But, you know, for the father, it's more important for him. It's more important to be reconciled to his son than to keep up appearances. And he entreated him. He, he's entre- he, the word for entreat, behind the word entreat, is this word uh, that's referring to exhort. In other parts of scripture, it's like the word that y- describes what happens in a conversation when one person is calling another person up and out to maturity in Christ. He's exhorting him. He, he's entreating him. He's calling him up. Um. And what I love about this is he's inviting his son to follow his example. This is not just a distant teacher giving a distant lecture with brilliant ideas. This is a sacrificial father calling his son to join him in sacrifice. Follow my example. And the son's answer shows what's in his heart. Verse 29, the older brother answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. Can you hear the blame in his words? Can you hear the, the resentment boiling over? You know, it turns out that this relationship has been estranged for a long time. Because he doesn't even want to share the table with his father. Who does he want to eat with? His friends. He wants to eat with his, he wants a goat from his dad so he can share a table with his friends. He, and then he's talking about his father as if his father's like a slave master. He's thinking of his father in a stiff arm like, you're my master, I'm your servant. He's like, I've never disobeyed your commands. It's like, is that really our relationship here? You do what I say so you get a goat? Um... You know, just like the younger son, and this is the great insight of Tim Keller, he's interested in the stuff of his father just as much as the younger son. They just go about getting it in different ways. So not only is the elder brother resentful because this exchange didn't work out, but he considers himself the moral superior to his younger brother. Uh, Look at the, so there's just contempt in verse 30. 
it's going to spew out like lava from a volcano. Lots of contempt towards his younger brother is just going to come up and out. Uh, He's been bottling it in potentially, but verse 30, he articulates it. But when this son of yours came, notice it's not my brother. It's when this son of yours came who devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. It's like the worst possible interpretation of what the younger son did. It's not like he was there. He's just filling in the blanks. Um, this, This son cannot fathom the logic of grace. And he too needs the father heart of God. Verse 31, the father responded to his son, son, you're always with me and all that is mine is yours. It's like saying, you know, son, look, um, you have me and you have everything I've got. I'll always be with you. I'll never forsake you. In, in fact, you've got some equal status with me. You have access to everything I have access to. Um, so he's not lecturing his son. He's offering himself to his son. Verse 32, the father continues, it was fitting. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. It's fitting. It's fitting not in your small-minded world of give and take. It's fitting only in a world where the gospel makes sense. It's fitting only when you're committed to grace. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost. He was ruined and is found. Do you see the father here? He's patiently instructing his um, older son about grace. And he's inviting him to behold the beauty of a resurrected life. He's saying, look, uh, a ruined person came alive again. And that ruined person is your brother And the only thing to do, now that we have him back, I've got him back and you've got him back, and the only thing left to do now is to celebrate. The only thing left to do now is to feast. So come back to the table, my beloved son, and embrace him as I embrace him. The father is calling his older son up to be a spiritual father too. To behold and rejoice in the wonder of the gospel. You know, Henry Nouwen, great uh, spiritual writer and teacher, um, he loved the story of the prodigal son. And for years, he was like torn. Am I the younger son or am I the older son? Am I the older son? Maybe I'm the younger son. And, you know, he was just tormented by this question. And at one point, one of Nouwen's friends pulled him aside and spoke these words over his life. Henry, whether you are the younger son or the elder son, you have to realize that you are called to become the father. You have been looking for friends all your life. You've been craving for affection as long as I've known you. You've been interested in thousands of things. You have been begging for attention, appreciation, and affirmation left and right. The time has come to claim your true vocation, to be a father who can welcome his children home without asking them any questions and without wanting anything from them in return. So, you know what? Whether we're self-absorbed or self-righteous, the heart of the Father is for us to join him in his loving sacrifice, in blessing 
and calling up the next generation. Um, you know what? We can do this. We can repent of our sin and our selfishness and our resentment and receive the Father's heart by the Holy Spirit. That's where it begins. We can receive the delight of the Father over us as his daughters, as his sons. And then we can, be, we, we can begin to, by grace, begin to model the Father's heart for the next generation that's looking to us. Um, let me share with you a, a, couple of princ- a couple of practices that I have found have helped reshape me. And I'm very early in the journey, but I'll share with you uh, what's helped me grow. Um, these really do apply for both the men or the women, whether you're called to become a spiritual father or mother. One practice is to share the small things of your life. Simply to share the small things of your life. Here's the thing. We don't think the small things are of any use to anybody. They're just what we do. The thing is, though, the next generation would love to share in those things with you. Did you know that? Here's one of the most impactful things that ever happened to me 15 years ago. It's when Bishop Stewart, he wasn't a bishop then, he was just my pastor. He was like, hey, you want to go running a couple times? We went running a few times. We went running along the prairie path, and you know, it's just like stretching, and um, I was trying to keep up with him, and he was teaching, you know, he was just like, we were just chatting, and we were just running, and um, I was like, wow, he wears some short shorts. Maybe I could wear some short shorts, too, and I run. <laughs> it's just a really simple way for him to share a small thing from his life. Around that time, Laura and I, who were very early on in our marriage, had a little condominium, and we had a few people over for waffles a couple of times. They were younger than us, and we were like, hey, sure, come on over. We're having waffles anyway. I didn't know how much that meant to them. I learned later that it meant a lot for them to sit around our table. We share the small things of our life. I didn't say give. Give implies distance. Giving bread implies distance. Sharing bread implies bonding. Um, None of us have arrived as spiritual mothers or fathers, but we can all take the initiative to share something small from our life. Another practice that has helped me is to look for ways to confer honor and cover shame, to confer honor on the next generation and cover their shame. I'll share with you another example when this happened to me. I was on a prayer retreat with one of my mentors, uh, Father Eric Olson. We were on a prayer retreat where we had time alone with God, but then we came together at the end to celebrate the Eucharist together. And he actually asked me, Aaron, would you lead us in this? Would you share, would you, would you lead the, the liturgy? And he's a better and more accurate liturgist than I am. And I'm sure I made a few mistakes. He didn't mention any of them. When it was all over, I was blowing the candles out, you know, that we had candles on the table and we didn't have these little great plastic covers, um, on acrylic covers. And I just went to blow the candles out. And guess what? The wax went everywhere, all over the linens that Father Eric had borrowed from the retreat, you know, the, the, the director of the retreat center. And um, when we were having lunch with this director, Father Eric said, over the course of time, he's like, oh, hey, he's like, uh, uh, Father, I'm sorry I made a mistake. I got wax all over your linens. Sorry about that. How can I make it right? I was blown away. I was like, he's willing to step in and cover. That was my fault. And he could have told the retreat director, yeah, the, the young priest over here. He didn't. 
Now I fessed up. <laughs> I had too much pride. Uh, but he was willing to cover my shame, and he was willing to confer his own honor on me. The final practice is the hardest one, and it's just to offer forgiveness when our children sin against us. If we become a spiritual parent, a biological parent, and we invest our hearts into the next generation, unconditional love means that you're going to be sinned against or even just annoyed. <laughs> and that's going to be a great opportunity to practice the forgiving love of the Father. Where we become like Jesus, we become an ambassador of reconciliation to that next generation that is terrified that we're going to reject them because they stepped out of line or they didn't please us. That doesn't mean that we don't ever have boundaries. We need to have boundaries. This doesn't mean that we pretend something doesn't hurt us. Of course, we are honest about that. But it means that we receive the Father's heart and then extend that forgiving heart uh, when we have the opportunity to. As we become spiritual parents in the Lord, let me pray for us. Father, I now pray that we would receive whatever you had to give us from this series and from this sermon. We pray that the Holy Spirit would refresh us now in the Father love of God. Thank you that you delight in us, that you say over us, you are my beloved daughter, you are my beloved son, and I'm well pleased with you. You delight me. Jesus, would you teach us how to pray to the Father and how to receive from his hand all the gifts he has for us? And may we, by faith, come to you for forgiveness and then extend your Father heart for the next generation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.